This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? Rick Halterman. He's a musician, photographer, and connoisseur of poetry. And he's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. What does that mean? Um, what does that mean? It's a bit on the cool side today, after several days in a row of being in the 70s and sunny. It's still spring, so there's there's hope. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the idea behind spring? You know, things come and go. There's always change. And from here, hopefully change will be for the better. Well, we're in a very interesting moment, as you know. And I can even start very quickly with a short E.E. E. Cummings poem, which maybe describes this moment. The name of the poem is Oh, Sweet Spontaneous. And here's the poem. Oh, Sweet Spontaneous Earth. How often have the doting fingers of purient philosophers pinched and poked thee? Has the naughty thumb of science prodded thy beauty? How often have religions taken thee upon their scraggy knees, squeezing and buffeting thee, that thou mightest conceive gods? But true to the incomparable couch of death, thy rhythmic lover, thou answerest them only with spring." I brought that poem out just because I think a lot of people have felt a certain amount of despair in the last year, and one can sort of fall into a hole with that despair, and it can sort of keep reinforcing itself instead of bringing in new energies so that there could be, you know, if hope is even a destination for some to try and get them out of that despair. What do you think? Well, we are living in very interesting times times unlike anything that any of us, I think, have ever experienced. So it's quite a challenge. And with spring, there is a lot of hope in the air in in many different ways. And yet we're still venturing into uncharted territory in so many different ways. Are you noticing a sense of despair still happening there in Vermont? Only what I heard about the weather recently for local farmers. That's the only despair I've heard, besides the usual political despair. (laughs) 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 Nothing new there. (laughs) Well, I guess this brings up this question of 
duality, you know, the, the way that it's set up, and I'm not referring to just politics, you know, specifically, but you know, the duality of either or mentality that really puts us in, in particular places and almost forces us into positions rather than, oh, say a larger perspective that would be more embracing or at least perhaps more tolerant. And, you know, it's like what's happening with the pandemic at the moment in which now there's already camps that have developed there in terms of whether one is being vaccinated or not, for whatever reason. And we're back in that polarity. And so I think there's been this hope, and perhaps springtime might be a visceral example as far as how can, if it is even possible anymore, to get as many people as possible on the same page? Do you think that's even a possibility anymore? Well, I don't think it'll be the kind of same page that most people would like it to be. I think it would have to be more in the kind of same page that Rumi writes about, you know, the page beyond the right page or the wrong page or the right side or the wrong side. Or, yeah, yeah, the or spiritual th- place, the soul place, really. Yeah. Because I wondered with the pandemic itself that would this be enough of a perspective-altering situation for people to be willing to relinquish some of those minor points of view for the sake of, in the case of the pandemic, the well-being of not only oneself, but all those around you. Well, look at the news. What do you think? (laughs) It's not happening. In fact, it seems to be getting worse. Yeah. So I don't know if one was to believe in a divine or something that's going to sort of keep throwing curveballs our way to try and get us on that very page you're talking about that Rumi had mentioned. You know, I thought this was a pretty major event for people to reconsider how they were viewing things and going about their lives. And yet that doesn't seem to really have made much difference. I mean, out here I keep hearing ads about, well, this is how we get back to normal. I'm like, well, but normal really wasn't very good to begin with. Yeah, normal was terrible. Normal was heading us off the cliff. Exactly. So obviously normal is not something to be aspired to. Yeah. So how do we reconcile this notion of returning to a semblance of normality and yet not in a knee-jerk way just settling for the old normal? You're posing a great question. A lot of times I still go back to that perspective that I had in the book, which was that when we get embroiled in our identities, we're really talking about the ego-centered world, which is pretty much the world we live in today. And I think what Rumi was referring to was the soul-centered world. And once we get beyond our identities, that we're just part of humanity, and humanity is a part of this larger organism called the Earth and all the species that are involved on the Earth, how do we start living our lives from that larger perspective? rather than the very small perspective of, you know, whoever I think I might be, even though that wouldn't even necessarily concur with what's going on with the rest of the world. And it's a kind of a magical thing, because he was beseeching us to meet each other in that place, that place that we experience from love, from the experience of love. And and for most people in this world, they only experience that love when they fall in love with somebody or the kind of love they experience if they have children or with family. But those are defined by very narrow parameters. 
And I think Rumi is inviting us to a place where we can extend love without limits, without boundaries, without exclusions. And let me ask you a question here beyond falling in love and having children. Is it also possible, because I know this comes through in a lot of your conversations on the Magical Mystery Tour, that if someone goes through certain traumas in their life, and in, in essence, everything that they once knew has been taken away, can that love also possibly show up under those circumstances? Well, I don't think it shows up under those circumstances. I think it can show up in spite of those circumstances, that those kind of circumstances can be referred to as a kind of cross that we have to bear in our lives, and only in the honest facing of the challenges we face or the traumas we've experienced or the cross we bear in life, then we can work through it and it can actually be transformed into wisdom and a path towards what some of us are aspiring to. And I agree with that. And what I'm wondering is something that's just slightly different. And again, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, that there are those people, like myself, for instance, say at the end of oh, a relationship years ago, and coming to realize that everything I thought about, say, that particular relationship, or at least most of the things, were, as it turned out, to be quite untrue, that I really had to get to a complete reassessment, and it really created a lot more compassion, first and foremost, towards myself, so that I could do way more compassion towards other people. Oh, yeah. I think that's exactly how we get to that place if we've been traumatized. And I think, again, life is full of trauma. Life is full of suffering. There's no escape from it. So inevitably, we have to learn how to deal with it in a way that it doesn't completely hijack us or completely derail us from our humanity. Right? Oh, absolutely. That, that makes perfect sense to me. So I'm wondering, in the context of the pandemic, I was curious as to those people. Obviously, there are people that have lost loved ones, people have lost jobs, people have lost homes, a lot of pretty essential things. And if that stripping away would have somehow created perhaps a certain kind of preciousness in terms of just the very fact that we're here on this planet to experience any of this, we also have to remember that sometimes it takes time for those experiences to evolve or transmute or compost into something more fertile, more regenerative, or less less traumatic and less despairing and, and less catastrophic in its present effect upon us. Oh, and I agree with you that certain kind of distance. Sometimes it's just time and reflection, but I think that there's a certain kind of distance that humor creates, which allows you know that sort of joviality to come about. So the distance thing, and unfortunately, I think we live in a culture that really wants to keep us transfixed on whatever you know the moment happens to be providing, and there's something lovely about that, because of course, we want to be present, 
but at the same time don't want to get so embroiled in it that we become identified and the moment will actually take us out. I love that you brought up humor because humor, I think, shocks us or shifts us instantaneously into creating a distance from where we might have been a moment before, no matter what it was. There's sort of a nuanced place in here, which is what I'm wondering about. For instance, the person who I've been working with in the last few years, Robert Waterman down there in Santa Fe, he has a fabulous sense of humor. In some cases, it can be a little trying because he loves puns and he'll use them all the time. So depending on your own sense of humor, it can really, <laughs> you can adore it or you can not like it so much. But what I'm pointing out is that there's also a very serious part to this person. And I notice this in interviews or those people that seem to be, I don't know, maybe take themselves so seriously. And then, of course, somebody can be talking about a very serious topic and still you can get a sense of lightness in there, even amidst all of this other stuff, because they don't want to be too identified with that seriousness either as the whole of who they really are. I'm bringing this up because I think for the soul, humor is a, just a very natural thing because the soul, without any sense of identity, it's just what it is, that it's very easy to make fun of oneself because there isn't a strong identity that would be adversarial to making fun of oneself. You mean taking oneself very seriously? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's when humor is required. Yeah. So what did I read? Here's kind of a, a humor poem. This is Gregory Corso's poem called The Whole Mess Almost. I ran up six flights of stairs to my small furnished room, opened the window, and began throwing out those things most important in life. First to go, truth. Squealing like a fink. Quote, don't, I'll tell awful things about you. Oh, yeah? Well, I've got nothing to hide. Out! Then went God, glowering and whimpering in amazement. It's not my fault. I'm not the cause of it all. Out! Then love, cooing bribes. You'll never know impotency. All the girls on Vogue covers, all yours. I pushed her fat ass out and screamed, You always end up a bummer. I picked up faith, hope, charity, all three clinging together. Without us, you'll surely die. With you, I'm going nuts. Goodbye. Then the beauty. Ah, beauty. As I led her to the window, I told her, You I loved best in life, but you're a killer. Beauty kills. Not really meaning to drop her, I immediately ran downstairs, getting there just in time to catch her. You saved me, she cried. I put her down and told her, move on. Went back up those six flights, went to the money. There was no money to throw out. The only thing left in the room was death, hiding beneath the kitchen sink. I'm not real, it cried. I'm just a rumor spread by life. Laughing, I threw it out kitchen sink and all, and suddenly realized humor was all that was left. All I could do with humor was to say, out the window with the window. So he covers, covers a lot of ground in that one, don't you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, a new, a new twist on everything, including the kitchen sink. 
<laughs> throw it all out. Yep. <laughs> Which is really, I love that approach. And there's some people that are so easygoing about everything. Like, how, what would it be like to have an attitude in which you could somehow observe it all, all the craziness, all the adversity, and not be necessarily taken out or getting upset about it? And if you did get upset, you would, you know, find a way to help out or maybe change things. But to be so embracing, going, oh, this is this great salad of life. Let me dig in and I'll see how I need to react accordingly. Well, the people that I've known in my life who had the best senses of humor had the greatest amount of suffering in their lives. Mm, how interesting. And I think also there are some people, I remember my mother had told me I was one of three kids growing up, and she said that she never had to worry about me because once I was you know, sort of somewhat self-sufficient, I think around age three or four, she said all I did was sing and dance. Because I was number three, you know, I had a step-grandmother who said, oh, I was a lost one in there, kind of lost in the whole mix. But it seemed to serve me well, and I think that somehow I might have been blessed with a happy soul. I know that for others, that it's not as easy. Well, sometimes the youngest child gets the benefit of, of the parents making all their mistakes on, on the earlier children. Yes, although that didn't quite work out in my family. I wasn't the youngest. I was the next to the youngest. Which, and did you have siblings yourself, Tonio? Um, I had a, a younger brother when I was 15. And what do you mean when you was 15? Like when your I father was went to a grocery store and just picked him up and said, look what I brought home? <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Tell me the story. <laughs> no, it, when I was in high school, my father got involved with another woman and they had a child. Oh. And I was kind of stunned, and I was going to high school, so I didn't have a lot to do with him when he was that age. And I was kind of averse to babies anyway at that time, and much more self-centered. I was also a, a very moody, dark, surly teenager, at home anyway. In school, I was completely <laughs> different, but at home, I was very stubborn and dark and moody and depressed and difficult to be around. It was very hard to get me to be cooperative and helpful in any way. And and the idea of a baby around, I was like, uh-uh, ugh. I probably would have said something like, oh, I hate babies. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you develop this particular personality? Or, or should I even ask why? Probably early childhood trauma and having a mother that was manic depressive and yeah and being tr very traumatized by that repeatedly yeah and being an only child often only children tend to be self-absorbed anyway and would you say now obviously many years later that somehow you have been able to reconcile these pieces inside of you so that it doesn't have to be always a Russian short story living with yourself at home. What do you mean? <laughs> it's all about me. <laughs> so where are you now? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
because of all that suffering, which I, I went through for many, many years, even after that, a large part of my adulthood, I, I suffered a lot with myself, taking myself too seriously and feeling desperately that there was something fundamentally wrong with me and that I had to fix and being desperate to do that. It took a long time for me to work through that. I did a lot of introspection. Most of it was self-pummeling, self-criticizing. And then, then at a certain point, things shifted. Not sure how or why, but uh, I think it just took me a lot longer than it takes most people nowadays. Well, and don't, again, to be too hard on yourself in the sense that when you and I were growing up, the tools that are available now today were not available back then. That's true. That's why I said nowadays. Yeah. I was actually giving myself a break there. <laughs> <laughs> and I've certainly noticed within myself to the extent that I am, say, willing to criticize whatever out in the world is to the extent that I'm doing it to myself. Mm-hmm directed towards myself and so that's something I keep playing with on an ongoing basis as far as how can I keep toning that down where I still want to have a certain critical analytical ability because I think there are those moments where we need that to discern what's right or whatever but don't want to wear myself out in the process like you were talking about in your younger years. Well I think in this relationship that we have with ourselves as we're living in this world and engaging in this world, we're always doing something to ourselves. I guess the hope would be that what we do to ourselves is less self-destructive and and more and more self-empowering and self-supportive and self-accepting and even perhaps self-appreciating and self-loving. And if you could even name any tools that you are using, because I think this is the very (laughs) crux that a lot of people get stuck as far as how does one get beyond the traumas? How does one, and I'm not saying that we lose the traumas because I think there's always good information within those traumas and things we can always learn from, but how does one get to that distance that we talked about earlier so that you're not going to be basically blaming, you know, a parent or something for the rest of your life and never getting beyond that? Well, it's all about how we work with the trauma. And if we're successful in transmuting that trauma into a kind of wisdom, and as you said, trauma never leaves, it just changes. Our perception of it, our sense of it, the meaning that we make out of it changes, it shifts, it evolves, and goes from being a kind of toxic poison to a medicine or a wisdom, something that no longer beats us down, but now lifts us up. Yeah, that's nicely put. Very nicely put. And you asked about what method or methods I've used to accomplish that? Yes. Well? <laughs> I mean, it could be as simple as just sim- lots of self-reflection. I think that well, in was, itself is a pretty a, yes, valuable tool. yes. However, there's a caveat with that. I did a lot of self-reflection, but as I mentioned earlier, the early days of that self-reflection 
was self-criticism and, and self-destructive, more so than it was fruitful in a evolving way. But I think that may just be the natural evolution of that process of self-inquiry. The initial phase of self-inquiry is you have to honestly acknowledge what is there in your life. And at first, it may not be a pretty picture. It may not feel good. In fact, it may feel awful, and you may want to run for the hills. And you probably will run, or try to run for the hills. But as they say, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no escape. And I know for me, Tonio, part of it was actually finding words. And a lot of times I didn't have those words. Mm. I was too young. I was too inexperienced. But finding the words to accurately describe Mm -hmm. uh, what was happening around me. Mm -hmm. For instance, I had a girlfriend, oh, a number of years ago. We were watching these old videos of when myself and my siblings were all quite young. Now, she was watching these videos, and she had this very matter-of-fact comment, which turned out to be so accurate. She said, you as children were just furniture to your parents, weren't you? Because based on the video, there was no interaction whatsoever from the parents. They were having their own little cocktail party. We were playing all around them. But there was no interface between the child world and the adult world. And when she had mentioned that, this was the most amazing reflection on my childhood, that there really wasn't, you know, that straight-on intimacy or nurturing beyond, you know, being fed and clothed and having a roof over our heads. And I think that was a very generational kind of thing, too, which was we went and played out in the woods just to get out of our parents' hair because they really didn't care to have us around the house. As you know, probably when you were growing up, too, there wasn't such a thing as a helicopter parent. No, it was the opposite. (laughs) It's like, get out! Leave me alone! Get out! Stop bothering me! Shut up! Be quiet! (laughs) And then here's another thought that I want to ask you about because we're of pretty much the same generation, that particularly with the use of recreational drugs, in the 60s and the 70s, that certainly gave me very different perspectives as far as looking at things from a certain kind of distance. In fact, I have a friend here in Taos, and she was reading Michael Pollard's book about drug use, and she's been thinking about going ahead and doing what's called a heroic dose of psilocybin mushrooms because she really wants to rewire things going on in her brain and what's happening in her body. Did you have, did that have any bearing on all this? Oh, it had tremendous bearing. But here's two things I want to get to. First, I want to get you to talk about your experience and how those psychedelics affected you. And also, I want to acknowledge what you said about finding the right words. I think that is profound. I'm still finding words to describe and create meaning to past experience and to who and where I am now in relation to all of that. So I think, you know, finding words, opening up to new perspectives in that way is incredibly powerful. And to elaborate on that, I imagine if there was, who knows, in a parallel universe, that each and every one of us would have a poem of our life that's continually being written and revised, in which we keep distilling the very words you're just talking about, so that it really comes down to there are certain phrases that would so resonate with whatever experience that you had 
not that you would identify necessarily with them, but say, this was what my experience really was like. Well, interestingly enough, words were not my specialty. I did not feel particularly skilled or skillful with words, so that was not my forte or arena. However, reflecting on my life and looking at my life in progress, I often would look at my life as my masterpiece in progress. No matter how shabby it might be at times, that was actually the language that I used. That was the line. So yeah, I was using words. That was the line I was using, that that my life was my masterpiece that I was working on. Well, that's really quite lovely. And I don't think that it necessarily has to. Poetry happens to resonate for me and has been for some time. But it seems to me that if one was to look inside the vault of Tonio, there would be certain books on the shelf that were so resonant for you. There would be certain experiences, whether they were captured or whatever. There would be all these different things, certain foods that would most exemplify the things that represent Tonio and the things that Tonio loves. Oh, yeah, all of that. Yeah. I think we all have that catalog somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. So to answer your other question, I don't have really anything too profound or extraordinary to say because it really wasn't until I was a freshman in college that finally succumbed to smoking marijuana. And actually, I didn't really quite like the experience because I was already a musician and was already in love with music. That was my entry into the emotional world, into the world of art. And that time that I was getting high with these two friends, they were committed that that I had to have this experience. They had put on a Joni Mitchell album, and I quite adored and still adore Joni Mitchell. And it took really quite a bit of time, but I guess I was so stoned that when finally all this experience kicked in, the music was happening so slowly that it was almost painful for me because I wasn't getting the wonderful sensations that I had with just listening to it under a sober state. So that didn't really go very far. It was interesting as far as an altered state, but there was no real attraction for me. And you know, the same thing with alcohol. I never had that kind of thing going on. Then it started changing in the 80s, like first doing cocaine and seeing what that did to my body. And that was actually pretty amazing, the sorts of conversations. But then that wore out because I would be having, say, some remarkable conversation, like, say, I was like I usually have with you. But then there'd be some left turn in which all of a sudden something utterly mundane would take over the whole thing. And I'd be like, what just happened? And I realized after a time that this was happening more often than not. So that became disinteresting for me. I loved what it was doing to my body, but I realized also it was adversely impacting my creativity. Then doing mushrooms, that was probably the most interesting thing. And getting out there in nature and really feeling a very different reality. And in particular for me, there was a visual sense in terms of textures and colors. Things were really enhanced. And that opened up a whole new thing that had nothing to do with what I would call the literal world. I was like, wow, this is another dimension. But I'll be honest, and this just happens to be me, it wasn't until I went to mystery school with Robert Waterman that that had the most profound influence on my whole life. And I think part of it was that I was hungry for it and maybe ready for it at that particular moment. 
All the other stuff seemed to be recreational, but getting to meet somebody who really had a background in a particular spiritual perspective and a perspective that just resonated for me in terms of how we're going to live this life, how we're going to be in our loving, and how do we navigate this crazy, crazy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's great that that things worked out that way for you. And you know what I'm wondering underneath all this, because I've been thinking about this, you know, and actually it was, I started meditating years and years ago, but I've noticed this particularly, say, when I get in the water, but even in my morning meditations too. There's this quality sometimes when I get in the water, if I can slow myself down enough, where all sense of time gets lost. And I wonder if this is more of an older age kind of thing than a younger thing, where when that sense of time gets lost, there's no possibility of seeing death anywhere on the horizon. And this is all very unconscious, all this taking place. But I always imagine, like, for instance, when you're reading the book from an author you're about to interview, you get lost in the process which is so beautiful, and you're writing down all kinds of notes and everything, and of course, then the conversation comes out the way that it comes out. Do you think this idea of losing track of time is part of this process of getting older and that we keep doing whatever those experiences might be? Because I think that was part of the thing when we were getting high when you were younger, time got obliterated, and yet we realized that when it was all said and done, it's like, well, but did that really do anything? It's a whole other thing. Now, obliterating time in a sober state is so satisfying for me. Do you have that experience? Oh, yeah. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, we grew up in a time when there wasn't much sharing of that experience or acknowledgement. And even though we may have had that experience at times, we didn't think anything of it. But I think now that we're older and we've allowed you know, the old obsessive ego narratives to slow down and not captivate us so much anymore. We can hear the music of the moment, so to speak. We can feel the energy of the moment. So it's so much easier to get lost in what we're experiencing directly and to appreciate it. Whereas in the past, it may have just sort of washed over us quickly and we may not even have noticed it. Uh-huh. Here's uh, another poem, because it has a little bit to do with time. Here's Tony Hoagland. Oh, good, because I have one that relates to time, too, as well. Why don't you go first? No, 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 you go ahead. All right. The name of the poem is called A Color of the Sky. Windy today, and I feel less than brilliant. Driving over the hills from work, there are dark parts on the road when you pass through clumps of wood and the bright spots where you have a view of the ocean. But that doesn't make the road an allegory. I should call Marie and apologize for being so boring at dinner last night. But can I really promise not to be that way again? And anyway, I'd rather watch the trees tossing in what certainly looks like sexual arousal. Otherwise, it's spring and everything looks frail. The sky is baby blue and the just unfurling leaves are full of infant chlorophyll, the very tint of inexperience. Last summer's song is making a comeback on the radio, and on the highway overpass, the only metaphysical vandal in America has written, Memory Loves Time, in big black spray paint letters, which makes us wonder if time loves memory back. Last night I dreamed of X again, 
She's like a stain on my subconscious sheets. Years ago, she penetrated me, but though I scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed, I never got her out. But now I'm glad. What I thought was an end turned out to be a middle. What I thought was a brick wall turned out to be a tunnel. What I thought was an injustice turned out to be a color of the sky. Outside the youth center between the liquor store and the police station, a little dogwood tree is losing its mind, overflowing with blossom foam, like a sudsy mug of beer, like a bride ripping off her clothes, dropping snow white petals to the ground in clouds. So nature's wastefulness seems quietly obscene. It's been doing that all week, making beauty and throwing it away and making more. That is so wonderful. <laughs> Isn't it great? That's, that's amazing. He covers so much ground, and it I does. just adore him. We lost him a couple of years ago, mm. and I had so hope because he was so good that he would become one of the future poet laureates of the United States, and that chance never happened. Well, I think he is right now. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and, and let's bring him back. Let's bring him back by reading back through that poem, because there is so much in it, so many fantastic metaphors in there. I know, like, about the whole view in the beginning, and it says, but it doesn't make the road an allegory. <laughs> Start over from the beginning. Sure. A color of the sky. Windy today, and I feel less than brilliant. Driving over the hills from work, there are the dark parts on the road when you pass through clumps of wood, and the bright spots where you have a view of the ocean. But that doesn't make the road an allegory. I should call Marie and apologize for being so boring at dinner last night. But can I really promise not to be that way again? And anyway, I'd rather watch the trees tossing in what certainly looks like sexual arousal. Otherwise, it's spring and everything. Let's looks stop spring. there for a second because sure. that reminded me. Did you ever see the movie Walkabout? Oh, yeah. In fact, I own a copy of it. It's one of my all time favorite films. Oh, it's a classic. There's a section where there are all these shots of crotches in trees. Yes, I know exactly when. Yeah, and this is at a point where the Aboriginal boy is realizing that this woman, this girl that he is escorting through the desert, has become an object of, of that... Of sexual ma- desire. Yeah, sexual desire, yeah. male longing. Yes. And there are all these flashes back and forth between the crotch of the tree and their interactions. And it's very symbolic, but it's very obvious at the same time. And it's also so much profound stuff in that film. But anyway, continue, unless you have anything that you would like to add to that. There's also a foretelling in this very scene that you're talking about for what was going to happen in a tree later with the Aborigine in particular. Oh, you know, I never made that connection of that, but there's also, and I'm sure you remember this well, there's a poem that is recited at the very end of the film, that every time I hear it, because I've seen the film numerous times, and every time that poem is recited at the end, I, I just totally break down and cry. You know, I don't remember that poem, but I have the same reaction that you do. There was that moment in the film where they end up in that oasis, and they're all swimming naked with each other. Mm-hmm. And there was, 
I can even feel it right now. There was this innocence. It was like they found, somehow they found their way in the midst of the harsh outback to Eden, in a sense. And I think that was part of the point of the film, is how far we have drifted away from that very idea. I mean, I was even thinking this thought just because I was writing a piece about vaccines recently, and I was wondering about this idea of, so is there even such a thing as a pristine immune system in a body on this planet anymore with all the things that we have screwed up around us? Exactly, and that was the essence of that poem at the end. Not so much what we had screwed up, but what we had lost because we weren't appreciating what we had. Yeah, and that's the saddest thing about where we happen to be at the moment. So much has changed and so much degradation has happened just in the course of our lifetime. You know, those places, say, where I used to play as a kid in the woods across from the house where I grew up, that's all been developed into housing. Even the woods up here that I hike all the time for the last 20 years, I can see how that's changing. And this isn't just nature evolving this is loss of species is that i've noticed certain things just aren't coming back i'm looking for that poem oh goody i found it it's titled into my heart on air that kills into my heart on air that kills from yon far country blows what are those blue remembered hills what spires what farms are those that this land of lost content, I see it shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. That's really lovely. So you're going to have to go back and watch the film again, or at least watch the end. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's easy. It's on VHR. I can just rewind the tape. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of old technology, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Sometimes I'll be at my girlfriend's house and she has, you know, a large flat screen TV and she has Apple TV and Hulu and Amazon Prime. She has the whole thing. And I'll watch her working with all the remote controls in order to try and get a particular film up. And I'll just look at her sometimes and said, you know, over my place, we just would have put the DVD in the machine and we'd be watching it by now. I know. It, <laughs> I, this modern technology is nuts. I mean, I've house sat for somebody who had that kind of a setup, and it was maddening. There were there were three separate remotes, yeah. and there were so many buttons and so many menus and so many different things you had to deal with. It drove me nuts. I remember watching a few movies and then finally saying, you know, f*** it. It's it's not worth it's not worth the effort of trying to figure out how these things work to watch anything so I stopped watching anything and they had a giant screen TV and, and great sound yeah, and everything and I was just forget it Modern but I realized you know, and here I'm, I'm obviously admitting my, my elder age incompetence with certain technologies I still and I don't know maybe I'm clinging to an idea but this is really kind of a spiritual thing as well the simpler the better I, and once things start yeah. to get complicated that I get a little unsure if it gets too complicated. And this includes ideas. This includes poems that love to take lots of tangents, things like that. It was like with Tony's poem, and just like with A.E. Hausman that you just read. They kept it simple, but said it in such an elegant way that it can really drop in quite deeply for the reader. Yeah, I like to cut to the chase. 
Yeah. So you had a poem that you wanted to read, Tonio. Okay. This is titled, The New Song, by W.S. Merwin. For some time I thought there was time, and that there would always be time, for what I had a mind to do, and what I could imagine going back to and finding it as I had found it the first time. But by this time, I do not know what I thought when I thought back then. There is no time, yet it grows less. There is the sound of rain at night, arriving unknown in the leaves, once without before or after. Then I hear the thrush, waking at daybreak, singing the new song. Hmm. I love how he ends that. Mm-hmm. That not only, of course, there's a new song like Spring, but also that, I don't know, maybe this was back in the days when, you know, say, dropping mushrooms, that we'd be out there in nature and contemplate things like, so does that squirrel over there have any concept what time of day this is? All they know is it's just time to do whatever it is that they do. And they don't have a schedule to keep. <laughs> well, not like us. I mean, they still know, for instance, if the weather is changing, they better start stacking acorns and coming up with you know, a supply for the winter. But the rest of the year, they have no concern for such things. Yeah, exactly. It's really just down to survival. For instance, here at my house, there's a pair of baby morning doves. And they hatched probably a couple weeks ago, but they still have barely ventured out of the nest. I think the mom is still showing up about once or twice a day to get them fed. And they're really getting quite large. And there's a curiosity on my part as far as, so when are you going to check it out? Because they haven't even seen the sky yet. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of, you know, they're tucked up underneath a roof. Mm -hmm. So they haven't seen really much of the world except for this window that goes into my master bedroom. And I'm just wondering, so how does that time work in terms of that they'll know, oh, my wings are working, I guess I have to have the courage to just leap off this thing, and it'll be okay, whatever happens. So in that case, it's not the parent kind of nudging it out of the nest? No, it's really, and I've seen this a number of times, because they they seem to like the portal to create nests. Um, The parents really leave it up to them and their instincts pull it off oh how sweet yeah i like that and i imagine there are other species where it's very different Mm -hmm. so anyhow here's here's let's do yet another tony and this gets into a slightly different thing in terms of like losing time this has to do more with desire anyhow the name of the poem is called just spring and it even has some of that trauma that we were mentioning about earlier in the conversation here it is the teenage boys who broke into Our Lady of the Sacred Heart to graffiti their new vocabulary of swear words on the white, white walls who were attracted enough by the church, at least, to vandalize it. They broke the virgin's plaster nose with baseball bats and marked her private parts with orange spray paint because they loved their mothers so much it was killing them. But they left the gaunt, adolescent torso of Jesus hanging on the wall untouched because they didn't recognize themselves. Or maybe it's just spring, which drives more birds and flowers crazy. Desire, someone says, polishing his turbocharged Camaro in the drive, running his hands over its curves. It's a bitch. 
the blurred blue letters of the name Diane scorched into his forearm, record a season in his life he probably regrets. But desire, if you don't let it out, everybody knows backs up and poisons you inside like old sap clogged inside a tree. Or like the hard line of Joanne's mouth when she said, speaking of her first and recently demolished marriage, never again gripping the steering wheel with both hands and jamming the gas pedal down into the floor. Though she probably still wants to be followed, pulled over, taken from her car and carried off into the heavenly tall grass of heterosexual imagination. Then kissed all over her 39-year-old body until, like spring, she comes and comes and comes. Suffering mother of God, sweet Jesus. I love that. Just, again, he's covering so much territory in there. And I actually love the beginning is my favorite part. Oh, my God. Especially for me, that line of, you know, that uh, they broke the virgin's plaster nose of baseball bats and marked her private parts of arsenic because they loved their mothers so much it was killing them. But they left the gaunt adolescent torso of Jesus hanging on the wall untouched because they didn't recognize themselves. And I wow. love that they used the white, the immaculate white, as their screen to spray paint the new curse words they had just learned. Yep. It's exactly. their way of exercising their passion, their desire. Yeah. And and in my my thinking, my sense at that moment, you know, Mother Mary would have loved that. She would have rejoiced that these kids were expressing themselves so passionately, even knocking her nose off and spray painting her and desecrating her in the eyes of some people. I could just imagine her at least secretly saying, yes, go for it. <laughs> and I agree, Tonio, because I think, you know, if she had a thought, it would be, they're alive. Exactly. They've and as a mother... completely alive, regardless of whatever brought them to that place. Exactly. And as a real mother you know, a divine mother, a mother goddess, she would deeply understand the nature of, of life and the passion of life and have a full appreciation of that far above any of the proprieties that most people are, are kind of trapped in or slaves to. Yeah. And isn't this really just like spring, too, that she would be blessing spring in the same way in terms of the passion of nature saying, we're going to do this all over again because this is how we make babies. And isn't adolescence a springtime, you know, for human beings? Yes, I like that. So I have, a, I have another poem. Oh, goody. <laughs> this is called The Art of Losing by Elizabeth Bishop. Oh, great. The Art of Losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, accept the fluster of lost keys, the hour badly spent. The hour of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing further, losing faster. Places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, 
my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster. Some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like a disaster. <laughs> Why did you choose that particular poem, Tonio? I just liked it. And I also thought it, it connected, in a way, back to how we started the conversation, talking about you know, traumas and turning trauma into the wisdom to live by. Yeah. That's nice. In fact, here I just pulled this one up because I had read this a week ago on my own show because we're, we're in National Poetry Month. And this is by a poet who's no longer with us named Joe Salerno, and it's called Poetry is the Art of Not Succeeding. Poetry is the art of not succeeding, the art of making a little ritual out of your own bad luck lighting a little fire made of leaves, reciting a prayer in the ordinary dark. It's the art of those who didn't make it after all, who were lucky enough to be left behind while the winners ran on ahead to wherever it is winners go running to. Oh, blessed rainy day, glorious as a paper bag, the kingdom of poetry is like this, quiet, anonymous, a dab of sunlight on the back of your hand, a view out the window just before dusk. It's an art more shadow than statue and has something to do with your dreams running out, a bare branch darkening on a winter sky, the weak old snow frozen into something hard. It's an art as simple as drinking water from a tin cup, of loving that moment at the end of autumn, say, when the air holds no more promises and the days are short and likely to be gray. A bland light is best to see in. Middle age brings it to flower. And there, just when you're feeling your weakest, it floods you completely, leaving you weeping as you drive your car. Isn't that gorgeous? Mm. And this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Like, how do we... How do we get to experience this world to feel like those kids that were desiccating that church in Tony Hoagland's poem so that we can really feel truly alive? And here in this case, you know, he was saying that it really isn't all the glory and all that stuff. That's not when you do it. You feel it is really um, in these very ordinary moments. And so there's, there's a line I had. Actually, you know, this poem that I just read is, is in, in the book. Um, but there's a line in there when I talk about spirituality. I don't know where I made this up, but... Somehow, somehow I had, I had one moment of brilliance in my life. <laughs> Anyhow, I love this line where I said, you know, spirituality is finding the sacred in the ordinary, that we can feel so alive at really the most mundane thing, even going grocery store shopping, even finding something when you're filling up your car with gas. Well, that's where it is. Yeah. That's where it is. And I have another poem. Great. That I think goes with all of this. It's called The Present by Billy Collins. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I um, like him because he's fun. Yeah, I, I'm pulling out, you know, the big wigs. 
(laughs) (laughs) The present. Much has been said about being in the present. It's the place to be, according to the gurus, like the latest club on the downtown scene. But no one, it seems, is able to give you directions. It doesn't seem desirable or even possible to wake up every morning and begin leaping from one second into the next until you fall exhausted back into bed. Plus, there'd be no past with so many scenes to savor and regret, and no future, the place you will die, but not before flying around with a jetpack. The trouble with the present is it's always in a state of vanishing. Take the second it takes to end this sentence with a period, already gone. What about the moment that exists between banging your thumb with a hammer and realizing you're in a whole lot of pain? What about the one that occurs after you hear the punchline but before you get the joke? Is that where the wise men want us to live, in that intervening tick? the tiny slot that occurs after you have spent hours searching downtown for that new club and just before you give up and head back home? (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) You know, Billy has this great ability to really kind of make fun of everything because, you know, particularly it's like uh, the, the whole sort of the last 20 years of like, well, we have to be to the Thich Nhat Hanh approach. We have to be in the present moment, which I quite agree with. And at the same time, can't we even have fun with that? And there's a talk that I've played on my show by Ajishanti, where he's talking about this obsession with being in the present. And he says, we're always in the present. We don't have a choice. What most of us are trying to do is we're trying to escape the present moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What else could I be doing? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't like this moment. I want a different one. (laughs) Try to run away from it. (laughs) This moment sucks. I know you like this one because I had sent it to you by email. Speaking of being in the present, this is John Brem's poem at the poetry reading because here we are still in National Poetry Month. I can't keep my eyes off the poet's wife's legs. They're so much more beautiful than anything he might be saying, though I'm no longer in a position really to judge, having stopped listening some time ago. He's from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and can therefore get along fine without my attention. He started in reading poems about his childhood, barns, corn snakes, grade school, flowers, that sort of stuff. The loss of innocence he keeps talking about between poems which I can relate to, especially under these circumstances. Now he's on to science, a poem about hydrogen, I think. He's trying to imagine himself turning into hydrogen. Maybe he'll succeed. I'm imagining myself sliding up his wife's fluid, rhythmic, lusciously curved, black stockinged legs, imagining them arched around my shoulders, wrapped around my back. My God, why doesn't he write poems about her? He will, no doubt, when she leaves him. (laughs) Leaves him for another poet, perhaps. The observant, uninnocent one who knows a poem when it sits down in a room with him. Yeah, that's a great one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we're back to that desire thing. 
happening in there too, which is so great. And I, isn't that what we hope for? I think and that's one of the great things about poetry, is that it really will, particularly through the filter of a good poet, bring us into whatever present moment that poet has to offer. Exactly. Open the door so that we can step on through. Yes. 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 But also, don't you think that that would happen with one of your interviews as well? Hopefully. Yeah. It happens for me. Well, and I think you are very astute interviewer because you're really, well, you've done your homework. That's huge in itself. But also, you're very present to your interviewees so that the conversations never lag. Well, I I benefit from my presence in, in the interview. I'm not sure how it translates out into the listener's experience, but I definitely thoroughly enjoy stepping through into that into that middle space with my guests. Well, and I guess this is a question I've always wondered about. Are you reading books that happen to be sent to you, or are you pretty much being discerning because it's a topic that you happen to be interested in or want to learn about? It's a combination of the two. I just happen to have some good sources that send me books. Mm -hmm. But I... I pass on on at least half of the books that are sent my way, if oh, not more. Oh, how interesting. And can you give me, uh, and you don't even have to mention titles, but give me an idea, what is the terrain that is not interesting for you? Well, it's not so much the terrain that's not interesting. See, I read the description of the book, and then I go online, and I I read about the book, and then I also go to YouTube, and I'll listen I'll try to find the author and see what they sound like. So sometimes they can be talking about a subject that I'm interested in, but maybe their approach to it doesn't inspire me. Or maybe Yeah, like they're boring. Right, exactly. Or maybe they're a terrible speaker. Yeah. And then I'll pass. And then there are people who I think are amazing and whatever they write, I would I want to talk to them because yeah. I know that they bring a kind of passion or dynamic to whatever they're talking about that transcends the subject itself, which boils down to something I was just reading in a book that I'm reading right now where somebody was talking about how after all this soul-searching and misery, they realized that what was most important was the other people in their life. That's what gave their life meaning. And, and that reminded me that back in the days when I you know, had jobs, what was most important was not the job that I was doing, but the people that I worked with. Because no matter what we were doing, if I was getting to work with people that I enjoyed working with and being around, then I had a good time. Whereas I could be doing something that I really normally like doing, but if I'm around people who are unpleasant or miserable to be around, yeah. then it, there would be no joy in it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was interesting. Very interesting. You know, I do remember there was a, a shining interview you had done with Vijay Sasaji, the poet, uh -huh. and he was, I mean, he was just so fascinating as a human being. I mean, he was a really good poet to begin with, 
but then, you know, he was talking about working on a fishing boat and all these different experiences in his life. That was a fascinating, fascinating interview. You didn't even have to hardly do much work because he was so interesting. Exactly. And he was so articulate. He had so yeah. much presence. Yeah. And that interview was live. I mean, he was, we were there in the studio together. Oh, how lovely. The good old days. The good old days. And, and the rare days when somebody like that would show up. He was he was visiting Goddard College at the time. Uh-huh. You know, during one of their residencies. And somehow or other, I heard about him and said, hey, you want to come down? <laughs> and he said, sure. Oh, he was just great. He was really just great. So thank you for, for being able. In fact, I was even seeing if there was anything here to read, um, but... There's nothing in particular. That I, I have think. one. Okay, go ahead. This is titled Love After Love by Derek Walcott. Oh, yeah, that's in my book as well. Go right <laughs> ahead. I'd love to hear it again. Okay. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. There's a friend from years ago, and she had just finished a relationship, and that very poem is what I had suggested that she read, because I think that one of the problems in her particular relationship was that she had abandoned herself, and so she had forgotten about the very things that this poem talks about, you know, the love letters to yourself, you know, all these things that, you know, feast on your own life so that you're not making somebody else's life your priority. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yes. Really beautiful. Yes. Learn to appreciate yourself. Yeah. And here I'll give you another spring poem. This is James Wright's A Blessing. It's not very long. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white. Her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. Wow. That is a lovely ending. Isn't that what we're all hoping for? Mm-hmm. 
and to do it while we're in our bodies. <laughs> to be able to step out of our bodies while we're still in our bodies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, I, I saw my doctor of oriental medicine about a week or so ago, and he was telling me, and of course, sometimes I, I don't know how much credence I want to put into it. And he says, oh, Rick, he says, your chi is just blossoming at the moment. And I was feeling that and doing some laps, I guess, where everything was slowing down enough where there was that thing I was mentioning before, Tonio, time was getting lost. And I said, oh, so this is what it really feels like to be alive. Yep. And it's too bad that while we're young, we're not able to fully appreciate that. Well, uh, don't you think that we're just really sort of gathering and cataloging experiences and then there's a certain point, hopefully, in all our lives that we can start turning the experiences into some kind of wisdom? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that is what we do as we get older. At a certain point, you know, when we stop having, you know, that flood of youthful, passionate experience on a continual basis, we start reflecting back upon all of the experiences of our past and yeah. and seeing them all in a completely new light, at least for me. There's that, and also, you know, like this year I did this interesting experiment because my, my partner is a skier, at least she started skiing about three years ago, and I skied for years, including, you know, I spent couple years in Vermont and I was working at Mad River Glen and so anyhow I I started it up again to be with my partner out there on the slopes and you know it's been almost 20 years I mean I did it once or twice you know in the 20 years but I'd pretty much given it up and thought I was done with it so started it again and realized first that was interesting that I hadn't really forgotten anything and I thought wow this is just like riding a bike in a sense and then all season long you know at Taos there's very 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 steep terrain up top it's called the ridge and there's now a lift that goes up to one area and i kept looking at it all season long thinking god i wonder if i could do something like that again and this is really steep stuff you know steep like stow but wide open and rock lined and crazy stuff and so the last day that i went up my partner went out to california as i mentioned earlier so i went up and i said oh okay screw it i'll just go do it and i went up there and started skiing and it was really interesting there was an probably an eight or ten year old who was sort of paralleling me this is i think a little girl with a helmet on her jacket was wide open and i was like what the heck are you doing up here and this kid was totally fearless great confidence and was just working their way down through the moguls and all this steep terrain and i went down and i had the time of my life and i was like wow i didn't think i'd ever get to do this again mm-hmm. and i even went back and did it a second time i thought this is so thrilling what i thought i had given up Back there in my middle age, I'm still doing it as an old fart. This is pretty cool. Good for you. <laughs> so I think there, that is still available to all of us as well, that there are things, and not necessarily like you don't want to put yourself out there physically to where you're afraid you know, of doing certain things to harm your body, but there are experiences still available that we can revisit and go like, whoa, I can still do this and maybe even do it better. You know, it's like watching dancers doing it more elegantly as they get older they may not have quite you know the physical prowess as when they were younger like a ballet dancer but they still move beautifully Mm -hmm. yeah the wisdom in their bodies has settled 
into their bodies yeah. and been fully integrated. And wouldn't you say like the wisdom that all those experiences you had younger are what exactly brings you to the microphone as an interviewer so that you can get the sort of things that you get out of your guests in those kinds of conversations? Yeah, yeah. I get to draw upon the wealth of my experience. Yeah. And having been able to to translate that old experience into something meaningful. Yeah. And I think it really works out quite well because you've already gone through your own traumas and all the all the different paths of your life so that it's easy to be able to talk to somebody and see how it's working out or if they've come about with a new perspective of how to navigate this kind of craziness in one's life because we all go through those traumas. Yep. Yep. And it's the natural process of human life in this world to go through that process of, of experience and then integration. Yeah, and hopefully transformation in the process. Well, that's usually what comes out of integration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, here's one last poem. This is Marie Howe. She was a poet laureate of New York State, I think, a few years ago, and the name of the poem is called The Meadow. So it speaks to exactly what we're just referring to. As we walk into words that have waited for us to enter them, so the meadow, muddy with dreams, is gathering itself together and trying, with difficulty, to remember how to make wildflowers. Imperceptibly heaving the old impatience, it knows for certain that two horses walk upon it, weary of hay. The horses sway-backed and self-important, cannot design how the small white pony mysteriously escapes the fence every day. This is the miracle just beyond their heavy-headed grasp, and they turn from his nuzzling with irritation. Everything is crying out. Two crows rising from the hill fight and caw-cry in mid-flight and fall and light on the meadow grass, bewildered by their weight. A dozen wasps drone, tiny prop planes, sputtering into a field the farmer has not yet plowed. And what I thought was a phone, turned down and ringing, is a knock of a woodpecker for food or warning, I can't say. I want to add my cry to those who would speak for the sound alone. But in this world, where something is always listening, even murmuring has meaning. As in the next room, you moan in your sleep, turning into late morning. My love, this might be all we know of forgiveness, this small time when you can forget what you are. There will come a day when the meadow will think suddenly, water, root, blossom, through no fault of its own, and the horses will lie down in daisies and clover, bedeviled, human. Your plight in waking is to choose from the words that even now sleep on your tongue and to know that tangled among them and terribly new is the sentence that could change your life. I love the connection of the words sleeping on your tongue connected back to the beginning where trying to remember how to grow wildflowers. Yeah. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah. And maybe that's where we should end this, Sonio, because yeah. I think that's really, to me, 
we, we certainly find our grooves, but I'm always still wondering about those edges in my life. How can it keep changing so that maybe it can even get better? Well, may it be so. I hope so. It's certainly, I'll tell you, the one place where it does work for me is when I swim laps and I keep tweaking my strokes. I've really started doing that in the last year, and I keep finding a place where I know my body's in motion, but I'm trying to get it as effortless as possible. It's exciting. Well, I think it also happens in in the deepening of our understanding or our, our sense of self or or our sense of meaning or the meaning that we keep creating out of all of life. And for you, is is meaning an important idea? I don't, not in, not in a semantic way, but just the essential essence of our experience. That's and what I think of as meaning. Yeah, there's a great quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit because I can't remember it exactly, from Joseph Campbell. And the quote is basically, says, I don't really think what we're looking for is meaning. What we're really looking for are those experiences that resonate so deeply with the deepest part of who we really are that we can experience the rapture of being alive. Exactly, and that's what I think is true meaning. True meaning is not separate from the direct experience yeah. of life itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the rapture of being alive, and I think that's part of, I think, spring is that lovely reminder of that very rapture. Mm-hmm. And the rapture of talking to you, brother. And the rapture of talking to you, brother. <laughs> it's been delicious, and have a blast with spring. You too up there. And be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Rick Halterman. He's a musician, photographer, and connoisseur of poetry. And he's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. just about it for this magical mystery tour. We're going out with music from the movie Walkabout. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.
Into my heart an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again.